Hey, let's find our Bibles and let's turn to the book of Matthew, please. Matthew chapter 8. We're in a series in the book of Matthew called The Kingdom of God. And as we've been sharing along the way, and I've enjoyed coming to 613 and hearing Pastor Danny preach the same text that I preach on Sunday mornings. And so that's been a lot of fun and uh, enjoyable. Uh, Danny brings some amazing insight into the scriptures, and you're very fortunate to sit under his teaching. As we come to Matthew 8, uh, it's an interesting place in the Gospel of Matthew because as we've shared along, uh, Matthew is comprised of, of sections of narrative toggling with sections of discourse. And what we mean by that is Matthew gives to us the words of Jesus. That's the discourse sections. We just came out of a great discourse se- section, the Sermon on the Mount. And, and then now we're in a, in, a, in a narrative section, which is not the words of Jesus, but the works of Jesus. And so we're learning about who he is and what he's doing. And Matthew's intent in these chapters, chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew, is to prove that Jesus is Messiah. And one of the ways Matthew is going to do that, he's going to show that Jesus is more than just a mere man. He is man, but he's more than a man. He's the God-man. And through Jesus comes miraculous signs and wonders. Jesus is a miracle worker. And uh, tonight the theme is going to be on miracles. And we're going to be in the second, or excuse me, the third little section of chapter 8, where we've already listened to and watched the, uh, the leper being healed. And then last week the, the centurion's servant was healed. And now tonight we come to another healing, and actually a, a bunch of healings that come out of this text. So let's just read. There's only four verses we're going to look at tonight. And uh, then we're going to talk about miracles and what they mean for us. Beginning in verse 14, when Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. All right, so this is an amazing little text, and uh, from this text, we're going to teach some things, but we're also going to kind of back out a little bit and look at the context of this little section of Scripture and, and talk about miracles tonight a little bit. Uh, there's a lot of misunderstanding when it comes to miracles, and uh, I don't know if you've noticed that. Uh, most of us kind of define miracles as uh, an unusual thing that happens that has somehow a benefit in our lives, an unusual surprise that benefits us in some way. We use the word miracle to describe things like, I made it to work on time today, right? It's a miracle. Oh, man, there was no traffic on 880 or 580 at the rush hour time. Or you passed a test for which you did not study. It's a miracle. Is that a miracle, really? Or maybe that buzzer beater shot in the last second of the game. It's a miracle. It's a miracle shot. We talk a lot about miracles in that kind of way. A shorter-than-usual sermon might be a a miracle (laughs) for some people. Don't bank on that tonight. (laughs) Miracles are are things that we sort of, in our language and in our day, have sort of like dumbed down. But then on the other hand, how are we to be sure that what seemingly is a routine event in life isn't the providential, supernatural work of God in our lives? Someone this morning, after the morning service, explained to me that they were on a road trip in their RV and uh, they were coming down a, a mountain with lots of curves and turns. They had their grandkids with them. And they got down on the flat in a nice straight area. And suddenly they had a blowout in their front left tire. And a big RV, 38 plus feet or something, kind of an older model. And this really shook this guy up. He said, had that happened on those curves, 
uh, you know, that would have been a different story. So his comment to me was the law of physics had said that this tire has, was ready to go, but God maybe intervened there and kept us from having a blowout. I don't know. Did God do that? Does God work in the routine things of life? Does he show up? I'm reminded of the cute story of, of the guy that was caught in the flood, and he was standing on the roof of his house, and a boat you know, comes by and says, hey, jump in, we'll save you. And he goes, nope, I'm a religious guy. I'm trusting God for a miracle. So the boat putters off, and a little while later, it, now the water's up to his ankles. And so another boat comes by and says, hey, get in, we'll save you. And he goes, nope, I'm trusting God for a miracle. And then later on, the, the water comes all the way up to his chest. Now he's getting a little worried, but another boat comes by and he says, nope, I'm worried, I'm, I'm trusting God for a miracle. And then finally it goes all the way up to his nostril and he's just, blah, 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 he's almost going under and a helicopter flies over, drops a ladder and says, jump on, we'll save you. And he says, nope, I'm waiting for God to give me a miracle. And then he drowns. And he goes to heaven, this is the story now, he goes to heaven and, he, and he's kind of upset. God, I was waiting for a miracle, what happened? And God says, I don't know why you're so upset, I sent you three boats and a helicopter. Now, sometimes we look at, at life and we forget that God is actually superintending. God is doing things behind the scenes. He, what we think is a mundane, routine event may be the providential working of God. But when we come to the New Testament, it's important to understand that this little word miracle, the, the word that we see uh, throughout the text of the gospel, and by the way, Jesus did 37 miracles recorded in the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in each of those miracles, there's a recognition of something supernatural. The writers of scripture are very stingy with this word. They don't, they don't call something that happens to be routine a miracle, per se. Uh, it, it seems to be something that needs to break the laws of nature, that God is actually intervening, that there's something supernatural intersecting with our life. And so I'm wondering how many of you tonight, this is a, a rhetorical question, has, have experienced a miracle. And you might be sitting here thinking, man, I wish I had a miracle. I need a miracle in my life. And I want to just remind all of us tonight that, uh, that, that miracles uh, come in all kinds of different shapes and sizes but if you know Jesus tonight, you've actually experienced the greatest miracle of all. And I want to share with you tonight a few principles. If you want to write these down, you can. Uh, but how to define what a miracle really is from this text and in the context. This might help you with some of the messages that we're getting uh, in our modern uh, evangelical world today about miracles and you can have your miracle and all of these things and how to look for miracles. And there's a lot of messages out there that, uh, that need to kind of come through a little bit more discernment, in my opinion. And so let's let the scriptures kind of speak into that. Let me give you some things that describe Jesus' miraculous power as we read in the text. The first thing I would point out is that when it comes to Jesus' miraculous power, uh, it's personal. There's always a personal application. Jesus doesn't do randomized miracles uh, to sensationalize. If you're taking notes, you might want to write down that miracles were never meant to sensationalize. They were always meant to legitimize. The miracles of Jesus were an attestation. They were an affirmation. They were an authentication of who he was and, and what he did. Miracles were never to be sensationalized. And that's why some of the apocryphal gospels that are circulated out today uh, don't really cut the same kind of weight as the biblical gospels because in those apocryphal gospels uh, that uh, were probably written in the second and even third century A.D., uh, many of them poise Jesus or point to Jesus as sort of the one that um, is always uh, doing things just as a way uh, that he, because he can. Like he's, he's a carpenter, so he cuts a board too short. Oh, that's not good. So he does the miracle and extends the board. 
Those are in apocryphal works. Those are not the gospel miracles. Gospel miracles always have a personal attestation to the work of God in someone's life. And here, right here in, in Matthew 8, we see that Jesus comes into Peter's house. And did you know, by the way, little side note here, did you know that Peter was married? A lot of people didn't know that. Peter was married. He had a mother-in-law. We don't know anything about Peter's wife. Uh, maybe she had passed on. There's no record or, of, of her in the Gospels or her, even her name. But here it is recorded, Matthew says, that Jesus came into Peter's house, and there Peter's mother-in-law was lying in bed with a fever. There was a person that needed a special touch, and Jesus was there. It's amazing to think how Jesus touches our lives. And here we have the reminder that one of the characteristics of the miracles of Christ is they're always personally attended. It's a personal application. There's something Jesus wants to connect with you. And he reaches out and he touches her hand. Do you remember if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you saw that in the first miracle of Matthew 8 with the healing of the leper, Jesus reaches out and what? He touches the man. And then in the faith of the centurion, Jesus uh, is speaking to this man, and the man just says, all you need to do is what? Speak the word. Did you notice in this text, Jesus both touches and speaks the word? As a reminder to us that Jesus is a personal God with authority. It's amazing. Now, we talk about Jesus touching our lives. Um, The greatest touch and the greatest miracle of all, as I said a minute ago, and if you know Jesus Christ today through a relationship with him, I would suggest to you that you've already experienced the greatest miracle you could ever experience. And that is that you have crossed from death into life through faith in him. That's the greatest miracle. God would take, that's resurrection miracle. That's death to life. That's amazing. Now that happened to me as a little boy sitting in a Sunday school class over in a a little Baptist church on the peninsula and I was probably in, I don't know, third grade or so, and I remember trusting in Christ, praying a prayer, and asking Jesus into my heart. But then I remember a few years later, I was sitting in the top row of the Oakland Coliseum, when they called it the Oakland Coliseum, and Billy Graham was preaching. This is in the early 1970s, and uh, there I was, a kind of a disgruntled middle school student that my parents made me go to this thing, and I'm sitting in the top row of the Coliseum, probably with my arms folded, And listening to one of the greatest evangelists of all time preach the gospel, and I remember how Jesus touched me that night. Uh, Now, you know, nothing mystical, but just the reality that Jesus was there. I sensed him, I knew him. I already had come to know him, but it was sort of at that point in my life that the Lord needed to once again touch my life and show me his power and remind me of who he was. Fast forward a little further, I remember a few years later now, I'm in high school and I'm up at a camp in in, uh, the Sierras, a place called Sugar Pine, and I'm there um, uh, with about 300 other high school students, and once again, my life had sort of drifted, I'd become a pretty good uh, religious kid, I would live a certain way when I was at church, and then I would live a certain way when I was with my friends, and there I was at this camp as a sophomore in high school, hearing the message of the gospel and the preacher, you know, the guy speaking, and I was thinking, I I still remember it to this day, thinking, wow, this guy must have spoken to my parents before we got up to this camp. He was talking right to me. He was just, everything was right about me. And I remember at that camp, God touching my life, Jesus touching my life in a powerful way, making some big changes in terms of the kinds of ways I live my life, what I did when I was around my friends and so forth, those kinds of things. There's a big, big point of change in my life, transformation in my life. He touched me then. 
And then I remember a few years later after that, I'm probably, I don't know, 19, almost 20 years of age, and uh, I'm two years into college. I'm heading toward a fire science career. I want to be a firefighter, and, uh, and I'll, I'll never forget. There was an experience in the youth ministry in the church of which I was a volunteer, and it really sort of opened my eyes to the spiritual battle that people are in. There was a young kid that was into the occult. He was, a, he was into witchcraft. The guy was just kind of strung out on a lot of weird stuff and uh, kind of witnessed the power of the of the world of, of demonic forces and just kind of, I don't want to go into the whole story, but it just sort of opened my eyes to it. And I remember after seeing all of this and experiencing this, sitting in the back of this little audit, little sanctuary over there at the, at the same church where I had come to trust in Christ and looking out and up at the cross and without an audible voice, I remember sensing Jesus calling me out of the direction of where my life was going at that time into vocational ministry. And I remember it was so clear. I, I went home, I went to bed, I had a beautiful time of worship there in that, in that sanctuary. The reason I was there all by myself, I was a janitor at the church. That was my job. And so I had the keys. And so after this little event with our youth ministry, I just sort of hung out, went in there, and had that moment with, with the Lord Jesus. Amen. And uh, I remember going home, uh, going to bed the next morning, going down to the firehouse where I was a volunteer. I was testing all over the peninsula. I was trying to become a firefighter and telling my captain that I had volunteered and he knew all about my life. I said, I'm leaving. You won't see me again. I'm heading into a full-time vocational ministry. He's like, what? He couldn't believe it. I remember telling my parents that afternoon and they were sort of like, whoa, hold on, slow down. You know, they thought I had just sort of jumped ship, given up on all this, but the Lord had touched my heart. Now, I'm not suggesting by that story that when Jesus touches your heart, you're going to become a full-time vocational pastor or something. Uh, in fact, that's, that's not at all what I'm encouraging. In fact, I would encourage you to follow whatever it is that Jesus has called you to do. What has he called you to do? Everyone's got a calling in their life. And wherever Jesus sends us, that's where we go. So Jesus, what I'm trying to say to you is that his touch is personal. His miraculous touch is personal. It starts with salvation. But all through our saved life, he's going to be touching us. All through. When was the last time you felt him touching you? I don't mean like a physical touch. I'm talking about a, a deep down inside that you know it was Jesus at your heart's door, speaking to your life, talking about things in your life. Maybe it was at camp this week. That's always a huge thing for young people to go to camp and hear a speaker and to be a part of all the things that are going on and the worship. It's amazing. I'm sure all of you that went were transformed in your lives. But I wanted to point out that Jesus' miraculous power is personal. I want to also point out that it was effective. Look at the end of verse 15. It says that um, her fever left her. And then down in verse 16, it says... Uh, he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. Uh, this is, notice that there's no connection here with medical doctors or nurse practitioners. Uh, this, is, uh, this is the work of God, purely. Uh, there, was, there was nothing else needed. Jesus simply touched and she was healed. Jesus spoke and there was healing. This is what Jesus does. This is the power of God. And this is a great reminder to us as we think about um, even being here tonight, that the real purpose of the church is to yearn for and long for the manifestation of God's power and presence. We sang it so beautifully tonight. Your presence is all I want, all I need. I mean, that's really the heart cry of every believer, is it not? And what we do when we come to a place like this is we are crying out and calling out that the presence of God would show up and that he would manifest his power and his glory because 
we're not looking for some sign or some miracle. We're just wanting to be in his presence because in his presence, that's where amazing things happen. And what he does in those kinds of moments changes a person's life forever. The Apostle Paul in the first letter of Corinthians, chapter 2, verse 5, he yearned that people in Corinth would recognize that it was not the wisdom of men but the power of God. He said, we came to you not with flattering speech or persuasive words, but the, the cross would be emptied of its power. The miraculous power of Jesus is effective. It does the job. Aren't you glad? A third thing about Jesus' miraculous power is not only is it personal and it's effective, but it's also instantaneous. Uh, miracles uh, are, are not things that happen over time. When God intersects and supernaturally works all through the Gospels, it's an instantaneous work. I've heard some people say, well, Larry, I had this experience. There's a person who has the gift of healing, a, uh, the, a gift of miracles, and they told me that if they would pray over me, um, I would eventually be healed. Uh, you'll start feeling better in a few weeks, someone told them. Uh, you'll start having improvement in these conditions. Uh, I, I would just suggest to you that if anybody presents that kind of message in terms of a miracle of God, it's really not a miracle of God. The New Testament writers would not corroborate with God touching us and suspending it over a period of weeks because his supernatural touch is instantaneous. He doesn't need any time whatsoever. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He didn't need time. He could speak the universe into existence. From the first verse of the Bible all the way to the end of the Bible, we have recorded the supernatural works of God. And when God acts, it is supernaturally instantaneous. It's amazing. And so that's, that's something that encourages our hearts tonight, knowing that we don't have to wait on God. If God's going to work, if God does do a work, we can trust that it's going to happen just like that. You know, if you came to me and said, well, Larry, I'd like to pray, you know, like if I told you tonight I have the flu, and I don't have the flu, but if I told you I had the flu and you said, well, I'm going to pray for you, and about a week later I came back and you said, hey, how you doing? I said, I'm fine. When did you get better? Well, a couple days ago. Uh, you would not necessarily be inclined to think that because you prayed for me that, that God used your prayer to heal me supernaturally. Because usually the flu kind of takes about seven days, right, to get through? So what I'm just saying is sometimes we look at, we, we jump a little bit too quick on the bandwagon of that must have been a miracle because Someone said something, and, and down the road, something happened. God doesn't need any time. Supernatural work of God is instantaneous. Now, God can use time if he wants, and that's how God intersects providentially in our lives. God does use, please listen carefully, God does use doctors. He uses medicines. He uses the beautiful uh, way that he's created our bodies. You know, you notice I got this little cast on my hand, Right? So I was playing basketball a couple weeks ago and, and dislocated my finger and broke my finger. Well, I would have loved to have God just instantaneously heal me there. Why? So I could go back and play more basketball? Well, maybe. I would like to do that. But for the last two weeks, I have suffered under the, under the problem of not being able to type. <laughs> I am, you know, like I depend on my ability to be on a keyboard. I do tons of email correspondence. I'm just, I need all these fingers, not just two. But you know, it's amazing. You know what God did over these last two weeks? Now I can type with just these two fingers and these four fingers. It's a miracle. No, it's not a miracle. 
But you know, that's just the beautiful thing, the way God makes our bodies. He does amazing things. There's no question about that. His providence intersects and great things happen in our lives and in our bodies because just the way God has made us. And we can give him praise for that. We can thank God for that. It's a mir- it is a miracle that our bodies can replicate and improve and change and all of those things. Praise God. His miraculous power is personal, effective, instantaneous. It's also purposeful. It's purposeful. Now, notice in verse 15, uh, Peter's, uh, Jesus' is, uh, I'm sorry, Peter's mother-in-law gets up and begins to wait on him. Now, all the synoptic gospels tell this story. Both Mark and Luke also tell the story that Matthew gives to us here. And in Luke's account of this story, it says at once she got up. There was an immediate sense. She got up and she started serving. Now, the grand purpose of God's design in doing a supernatural miracle, something supernatural in our lives, the grand purpose, listen carefully, is to to reveal his glory. It's always to reveal his glory. It's not sensationalism. It's not just for your benefit. It's to reveal his glory. You see, here's, here's the problem of modern Christianity. The way a lot of people look at modern Christianity is this. Uh, gee, if I give my life to Jesus, he can start doing some stuff for me. In other words, I need God in my life because my agenda needs extra help. And if I can get God into my life, if I can have Jesus come over to my side, he can help me make my dream come true. There's a lot of messages that are going on out there that say something a lot like that. Jesus can make your dream come true. That's not the gospel. That is not the message of Christianity. The message of Christianity is this. God declares all of us sinners, lost, separated from him, but God, rich in his mercy and grace, has loved us in such a way that he would send his own son to be the sacrifice for our sins, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. The greatest and most amazing supernatural miracle is that moment when we step from death into life through Jesus Christ. It is not to get God on our agenda so that our life turns out better. Because the reality is when you come to Jesus, a lot of times, I hate to break this to you, your life will become a train wreck sometimes. He's gonna mix things up in your life and it's gonna be sometimes painful and difficult and you're gonna wonder what in the world happened to you. And if you're listening to the people out there that said it's all about Jesus fulfilling your dream, you're gonna say enough of that. I'm out of here. Christianity is nothing. That's not what Christianity is. Your presence, Lord, is all I need. It's all I want. We love God not for what he does for us but because of who he is. And if that's not where you are in your life, you may be a believer in Christ, but you need some discipling in your life. You need to grow deeper in your faith with what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But a tangential purpose, watch this now, his purpose is to reveal his glory. And by the way, just so we chapter and verse that, because I wonder sometimes, I'm assuming that maybe you know some of this, and maybe you do, but just so we chapter and verse it, would you go over to John chapter two just for a minute? just strikes me. I probably ought to clean this up just a little bit. John 2, the first miracle recorded in the Gospels is right here, John chapter 2. And do you remember what the miracle was? Yeah, he turned water into wine. Cool miracle, huh? But for John, all the miracles that Jesus does are a sign. 
And it says in verse 11, John records this, the first of his miraculous signs. In fact, John doesn't often use the word miracle as much unless it's attached to the word sign. Because for John, the word uh, the, the miraculous manifestation of God is always a signpost. It's pointing to him. Remember, it's not sensationalizing, it's legitimizing. Okay, so all through there are seven signs in the Gospel of John uh, and seven I am sayings. John has a beautiful, it's a beautiful Gospel. But notice it says, he thus, what does it say? He thus revealed his what? His glory and his disciples what? Put their faith in him. See, that's what it's about. This is why Jesus did miracles. It was to reveal God's glory and for people to put their faith in him. Um, and that's why a lot of people today are sort of like, well, if God would just show me a miracle, I would believe. Well, the reality is he's already shown us countless miracles. And it's been recorded in this book. And the veracity of this book, and we'll close in the message just in a few minutes with showing you something that is outstandingly in, in, uh, undeniably powerful about the word of God and how not only does it, does it record uh, the great miracles of God, but in itself it's a miracle by what it says. I'll show you that in just a minute. Um, verse 18 of chapter 2 of John, if you're still there. Then the Jews demanded to him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Okay. And Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. So now here Jesus is saying, well, here's the sign you're going to get. The sign is, actually, since we're on that theme, go back uh, to the book of Matthew now again. And go to chapter 12, please, Matthew 12, verse 38. Matthew 12, 38. Some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. That sounds really familiar. There's a lot of people today saying, oh, Jesus, I would love to see a miraculous sign. And look at how Jesus answers. He says, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as, the, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so once again, corroborating with what John says about Jesus' first miracle, uh, he's kind of stingy when it comes to just showing the miracle to prove who he is. So every time he does a miracle, he's legitimizing not only himself as the messenger, but also the message that he's giving. And that's the keys about miracles. Uh, miracles are not a sideshow that God does sort of entertain the crowds. Miracles are a signpost that lead us to him. In fact, the word used for miracle in the New Testament more than any other word is the word uh, simeon, which is the word for sign. It's a signpost. Another word is tetera, which is a word that describes wonders. Another word is dunamis, which is power. Another word is ergon, which is works. And you put all that together and you see that God uses, God does great works, powerful works, that does bring wonder to people's hearts to point them irreversibly to the one who can save their lives, Jesus Christ. And that is the purpose of miracles. If you do a study of miracles throughout the whole Bible, you'll find that very few, in comparison to all the history of all the years of the Bible, there's only a very small period of time and just little syncopated beats in the Scripture that bring to us miraculous works. And we are a sign-seeking generation that is crying out for signs and Jesus even denies that generation. He says, no sign will be given except the Son of Man will be three days in the earth. I think that that's profound. Jesus is pointing us irreversibly to his word and the purpose for why he does miracles. 
So where are we in this whole thing? Miracles are personal, effective, instantaneous, purposeful. They're also appealing. Verse 16, when evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. Now, the other synoptic writers tell us that this first miracle where Jesus touched the mother-in-law in in bed uh, and, and brought her back to health happened on the Sabbath. And so this is why Matthew says, when evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him. Why evening? Because they had to wait for the sun to go down before they could walk a certain distance. The Jews had religious laws about how far you could walk on the Sabbath and what you could do on the Sabbath. So when the evening came, now it's time. The miracle worker is here. Let's bring all these people. And they bring all these people to Jesus. And I think it's beautiful that Jesus does minister to these folks. And it kind of hit me as I was thinking through the text. I was thinking, wow, I guess if, if you'd been touched with the, the power of Jesus Christ or if you'd somehow witnessed of it or heard of it, uh, you would want anyone that you love to be brought into the presence where Jesus could do a work in their lives too. And I'm wondering, I'm asking the question of you as I ask it to myself, am I excited about taking the message of the gospel to the people that are, that are outside of my workplace? Now, I work in the church, so... The people that work here are saved following Jesus Christ, so I take the gospel out of the workplace, but you need to bring the gospel into the workplace. And I need to find avenues out of my workplace to bring the gospel. One of those avenues is the gym where I work out. I've got a lot of contacts there and people that I'm sharing my faith with and living my life before, and that's a great place. I I serve as a volunteer in the community as a chaplain in the fire department. That's another little venue I have to reach out to people who are outside of faith. I have neighbors. Guess what? I have neighbors that don't know Jesus. Do you? We've all got people around. We are surrounded by people that need the gospel. The question is, what are we doing? Are, Are we saying, like these people said, Jesus is in quarters. Let's get our friends. Let's bring them. I mean, when was the last time we invited somebody into where we have found life, where we have found the joy of the Holy Spirit and the power of Jesus' transformation in our lives? And that should happen in conversations outside of here, but it should also be happening as we bring our friends inside of here. Wouldn't it be great if there was a resurgence in all of our hearts for the people that needed Jesus and that we would just spend more time loving on people, serving them, so that it becomes so natural to say, hey, I go to this thing called 613. You ought to come sometime. You know what I find when people come as a guest with me? I find that they are so amazed. They are so grateful for something like They had no idea. Their view of church is usually a view that is, is actually uh, the way most churches are. And so wherever the gospel really is, where there's a life of God's people, that's just a great thing, and we should leverage that. We should be excited about that. All of our friends and people should know about this place that we call our spiritual home, a place where we fellowship together, a place where we corporately come together and worship God. Because his miraculous power is appealing. It touches people's lives. And he wants to touch the people in your life. Number six, Jesus' supernatural power is also authoritative. We said it last week and we'll say it again. With a word, Jesus spoke and healed all the sick. With a word. Uh, This is not a harbinger for what a lot of, quote, faith healers say today, that all we need to do is speak the word and it will be done. That's not what this is about. This is Jesus' word and it's his power and it's his authority. 
And that's why we were, I was thinking this morning, we, we featured the Gideons ministry this morning at our church and, and just reminded the great ministry of the Gideons around the world, two billion Bibles out there. How many of you have been in a hotel and seen a Gideon's Bible? Well, most of us probably haven't read one of those Bibles because hopefully we had our own, but he told stories of people in prisons and one guy that was in prison ready to hang himself and he felt the voice of God inside his heart as he was getting the noose ready in the prison to hang himself. He heard inside his heart say, read the book. And he remembered that in his cell there was a Gideon Bible that had been placed there and he began to read the scripture. And he started in Matthew and he got all the way to Luke chapter 15 where he came across the story of the prodigal son. And it so radically changed his heart in that moment. He gave his heart to Jesus Christ. He has a life sentence in prison, but this man is free because he knows Christ. How did that happen? Through the authority of God's word. The miracle happens through God's authority. It's his word. That's why we treasure the Word of God. That's why we teach it expositionally. That's why we spend time in it, that we don't just sermonize, but we dig into the text. We go through Scripture. We believe it is, the, it is that which leads us into a greater understanding of who Jesus is because it reveals him from, from cover to cover. And lastly, it's not only personal, effective, instantaneous, purposeful, appealing, authoritative, but it's also significant. Now, it's significant in verse 17, this, all this was to fulfill. Now, remember, all this, he says, Matthew says, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. Now, a little reminder here that whenever you see a quotation from the Old Testament in the book of Matthew, Matthew's assuming, he does this a lot, he does this more than any of the other gospel writers. He just takes a little snippet, just a little, just a little tiny snippet out of an Old Testament passage. But watch this. He expects his readers to understand the context. So he only gives just a little, he gives kind of the, the main point. What is the main point? He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. All of this, the, mirror, the miraculous working of Jesus was to fulfill what is said about Jesus. Are you familiar with the text that Matthew, that, quotes, uh, that Matthew quotes here from the book of Isaiah? If you aren't, let's turn there in our Bibles. Isaiah 53. And we're going to take just the last couple of minutes to look at something that is unbelievably profound. Isaiah 53. Um, this is in a section known as the Servant Songs of Isaiah, and in this chapter, we have one of the most beautiful renditions and portraits made of our Savior, and I want to just read through it. It may be familiar to you, but let it wash over your heart. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, 
and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and a sheep before, his, before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Bible scholars, who is Isaiah speaking of? Jesus. Yeshua. Messiah. When did Isaiah write? When did he live? 8th century B.C. Now anybody that would be critical or skeptical over the veracity and accuracy of Scripture, if they would just examine even this section, would be amazed that 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah was writing about him. This book is a miracle from beginning to end. This book that contains the revelation of Jesus Christ will transform any heart who sticks their nose in it and cries out to God for freedom, for forgiveness, for a new life. You know, tonight in just a minute, we're going to be uh, opening this area down front. We'll begin to worship the Lord again. And, and this is a time where we come and we, we remember what the Lord did. We're actually going to acknowledge and proclaim what Isaiah prophesied about Messiah some 700 years before Jesus ever came. And tonight as we come, if we're believers in Christ, here's a couple things I want you to think about. Number one, if you're a believer in Christ, I want you to come and as you hold these elements, the bread and the cup, as you dip into the cup and go back to your seat or do and eat right there, whatever, I want you to think about this. The greatest miracle that God has ever done has happened in your heart if you're taking of this bread and this wine with the right heart. That's the greatest miracle. He's transformed us into followers. He's taken us from death and given us life. The second thing I want you to think about is how his miraculous power is alive in your life and working in your life to carry out his purposes to reach a world around you with the precious and glorious gospel of his son, the Lord Jesus. And so maybe those two things tonight would circulate in our hearts as we come before him. And if tonight you've never opened your heart to Jesus, you're invited to give your life to him. And before you come and partake of these elements, give your life to him. And if you can't give him your life tonight, if you don't feel like that's really, you're still investigating, praise God. We're glad you're here. This is a safe place, right? 
If you're not ready to give your life to Christ, then just observe. Observe people worshiping God, partaking of these elements, not out of religiosity, but because they want to proclaim the Lord's death once again until he comes. But you can tonight give your life to Jesus. I'm going to invite you to do that. Even now, let's pray. Let's go to the Lord.